So here we are. We're going to talk about Romans 13 in a second. It's on your um, study guides. If you have a Bible or, or a Bible app, um, that might come in handy as well. Um, so I've been thinking about my life a little bit. I'm uh, thinking about the seasons of faith I've lived so far. And I, I see so far in my life three distinct acts thus far that stand out. And so the first act happened in my childhood and youth, from birth to 17, where I grew up in Red Lick, Texas. Anybody ever been there? Yeah? Wow. Oh, yeah, you have. Of course you have. We're East Texas buddies, but only us. <laughs> so <laughs> Red Lick is unbeknownst to most of the world. And um, is, uh, when I was there, you know, 250, 300 people uh, in the sticks of Northeast Texas. And I was a church rat, as most kids in small town East Texas are, but I was especially so. My dad ended up being a pastor, and, and so I was always at church. If I wasn't at the ball field or at home, you could find me on the church grounds. Even when I was at school, I was at church. They were on the same property, public school and church and cemetery, all together on the same <laughs> plot of land. That's not even a joke. So, uh, you know, separation church and state, not as big a deal uh, for us <laughs> back in the day uh, when, it come, when it came to, to church and school. And so I was there all the time, four or five days a week at least. And I learned certain things, and most of it was really good. Most of it was, has sustained me through good times and bad. But I, I also think I learned some stuff that was, um, while it was culturally apropos, it, it wasn't necessarily biblically thought out. So I, I learned some things about what it means to be a good Christian um, that I later questioned in life. So, for example, and growing up, I think uh, uh, the phrase good Christian and good American Totally synonymous, interchangeable. Like, uh, there's no difference between the two. And in fact, a good Christian was always to be uh, wholly patriotic and unquestioning of, of the American agenda. And the U.S. is the good guys and everybody else, or our opponents are the bad guys. And uh, you don't criticize the president um, and you... Always stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, and you pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, da 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 and then you always put your hand over your heart for the national anthem, and then you stay standing and put your hand over the heart for God Bless America, which is the second national anthem in East Texas, and then you stay standing with your hand over your heart for uh, Deep in the Heart of Texas, which is the third national anthem. <laughs> and... I grew up believing that to be a good Christian meant that you're always supportive of the military, right? So I came of age as the first Gulf War was really taking shape when some kid named Wolf Blitzer was showing us uh, Patriot missiles and uh, Norman Schwarzkopf and all this stuff, and, and my church got all wrapped up in it. I remember standing a few weeks after that war began in 91, I think, I remember standing up in front of the church with my dad. I was 11, so it was 90 when it started. I was 11, and um, we sang in a worship service Lee Greenwood's classic, uh, God Bless the USA, and there was not a dry eye in the house. They, it was a standing ovation. They were all standing with us by the end of it, and uh, it was uh, 
the greatest moment of my life so far. So it was, uh, <laughs> how much better does it get for a boy? You're with your dad, everybody's cheering, it's great. Um, but I also learned other things other than patriotic stuff about what it means to be a good Christian. I learned that a good Christian lives a different life. A good Christian doesn't party like non-Christian kids do. A good Christian doesn't drink or have sex or date or dance like other uh, kids do. Um, although with that sex thing, I will say that a lot of my good Christian friends found some creative workarounds. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the rules were still there. You were to live a different kind of life as a, as a Christian. And if you didn't, then you probably weren't a real Christian. That was Act 1. Act 2 of my life uh, so far uh, took place between the ages of, let's say, 19 and 33 and during that season of my life, um, I lived basically the polar opposite of the first. I uh, did a complete 180. I left behind any sense of submission or surrender or humility when it comes to God and country, things like that. I became during that season of my life somewhat of a socialist, semi-Marxist uh, somewhat anarchist kind of, uh, y'all are trying to picture this, believe me, it's true, like this actually happened. And, um, and so in that time of my life, although I wasn't really a Christian in my heart, I would play the Jesus card whenever it was convenient. So I played the Jesus card whenever I needed a job or a scholarship, or I wanted to make a point about my own preconceived political ideas. And I could use some of what Jesus said to support what I already believed to be true. I would leave behind all the stuff I didn't like and just take those points and then prove more conservative Christians in my life wrong by using their own Jesus against them. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? So I did that all the time. I, my favorite thing Jesus did was turned over the, temples and the, the table in the temples because he was rebellious like I was rebellious. and like, yeah, the man. And like that was my favorite thing about him. And I would take his teachings about the dangers of wealth and his teachings about caring for the sick and kind of use that and only that to support my own leftist political agenda. It's amazing to me looking back how even though I didn't believe in Jesus, I had no qualms about taking him and remaking him in my own image. And how easy is that to do for all of us, not just for me. That's like one of the most common sins we commit. In fact, as I lead us through this teaching in Romans 13, I'm going to challenge and encourage you to think very deeply about who Jesus is to you. What does God look like to you? How does, do the beliefs or the will of God differ from your beliefs and your will and your values? If they don't, that's a telltale sign that you've created God in your own image. If God only comforts you and reaffirms your preconceived ideas and there's never any conviction or calling you out to the mat or changing the stuff you thought was true before and opening your eyes to some new belief, new truth, higher truth, then you've probably created God in your own image just like I once did. That's not how this is supposed to work, right? So I, I want us to kind of uh, dig through um, Romans uh, chapter 13 today and see again how the Holy Spirit doesn't just affirm us, the Holy Spirit convicts us 
as well. So um, in Romans 13, I think what Paul is doing is he is, uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing three important questions that every Christian comes across in some part of the journey. Every Christian asks these questions at some point along the way. These three questions. First is uh, about patriotism. How patriotic should Christians be? Should Christians pledge allegiance to the flag? I thought we just pledged allegiance to God. How can we pledge allegiance to both? You know, and do we, do we go along with paying taxes and stuff like that even if a government isn't what it should be? Second, should Christians be okay with sinners? Should we put up with sinners? And not just from a distance like I was told to do in Red Lake, Texas, but should we put up with sinners in terms of proximity, hanging out with them, being with them, sharing space with them, understanding them, hearing them? Like how close should we get to sinners? And third, should Christians party like we used to? To Christians party like we used to. I think that one is self-explanatory. We'll get back to it in a second. So uh, I'm going to read this in three sections. Uh, this is chapter 13 of Romans. You can follow along with me in your study guides or on the screens. Uh, the first part is the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13. Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what's right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Boo. But it's for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you pay taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So this first question is how patriotic or submissive should we be to the government? As you can imagine, this chapter was in my heavy playlist uh, when I was in Act 1 of my life uh, in Red Lake, Texas. We loved this chapter because uh, the kingdom of America and the kingdom of God were almost one and the same. And so we often would talk about this. In Act 2 of my life, however, I found uh, ways of uh, getting around this because it was an inconvenient um, part of the past. I used to say that Paul just included this uh, as a way of manipulating Rome so that uh, they would deliver the letter, so that the letter wouldn't be intercepted, right? So I used, to, I used to make up all these things that I didn't really know what I was talking about. I was, I was ignorant, but I thought I was smart. You ever been there? All right, so uh, uh, it's there, and so we have to deal with it. What is Paul saying? Is he, is he saying that Christians should always live in submission to the governmental rule and authority? Should we always surrender to the laws of the land, even in cases where that government or those laws seem to run counter to the heart of the gospel. What is he saying? Uh, to kind of start this part of the teaching, I think it's important to keep two things in mind. First is perspective. Second is context. Perspective first. In my experience, we who sit in relative comfort and ease in 2018 Western civilization and critique everything about the government, legislature, the laws, the courts, we who are so critical to the point of being cynical about our government. 
We have, by and large, to my knowledge, never lived in a place without one. And I think that's important. Because I think until you've lived in a place that is absent, the rule of law, uh, it's a little bit of what we call chronological snobbery to think of this as a, as, as a problem. The rule of law is a problem today. Let me tell you what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is that I, in my experience, people who criticize America, Supreme Court, government, laws, Congress, and Congress's approval rating is like, a negative number now. I didn't think that was possible. But it's, uh, it's just an awful thing. And everybody's so negative all the time. You ever noticed? You ever noticed? Y'all just, I, I've had more time to work through this and to get comfortable with this idea than you have. I understand. This is, I'm springing something on you here. But in my experience, we do that. We complain without giving due deference to the reality that we're able to complain without our heads getting cut off because this is the U.S. of A. and not some medieval like countryside where the guys with the weapons and the money make the rules up as they go along and you could pay your taxes next year with your firstborn for all you know and your wife had to sleep with some lord on your first night together because like in Braveheart or whatever, like I don't know how it happened, but I know we're lucky. And so maybe when we're so busy in our elitism and our cynicism, mocking the government, tearing it down, criticizing it, saying everything's bad, America's awful, the courts are corrupt, maybe we could mix in a little humility once in a while, a little bit of gratitude for how lucky we are to live in a place where laws matter, where there are repercussions for crimes committed against you. There's a justice system. There's a 911 to call. Most people who've ever lived, many people who live today don't have a 911 to call. They don't have a court to depend on. They don't have any system of justice or the rule of law to look to. How fortunate we are. In fact, government can be a resource, a tool to advance the cause of God's justice. Now, the other part of this argument is about context. What I mean with context is when and where was this written, Romans. We've said before, Paul wrote Romans in the year 58 A.D. Now, by the year 58 A.D., the Jews in Rome, and I'm using quotes there for a reason, I'll explain in a second, the Jews in Rome had already been expelled from Rome once, maybe twice, by the emperor Claudius. So, um, in reality, uh, this is not just attested to in the New Testament. This is attested to by at least two major secular uh, historians, Josephus and Suetonius, as you see on the screen. And uh, like Suetonius says, Claudius expelled from Rome the Jews, constantly rioting at the instigation of Christ. And so you can see here, there is a little bit of conflating going on. Claudius didn't know the difference between a Jew and a Christian because he was uh, high and mighty and they were the lowly people. And so he didn't really care enough to figure out who was who. And so he just conflated the two. And so whenever the people following this Christus character were causing trouble throughout Rome, he just kicked out all the Jews. At least once, maybe twice. And so in addition to the government being a tool for God's purposes, I think Paul also has a pragmatic reason for writing this sometimes troubling chapter for some of us. I think part of the pragmatic reason for writing this is that Paul had a vision from God to spread the gospel throughout the known world. And Rome was the center of it. And it was a strategic advantage to have a thriving church headquartered in the city of Rome. Y'all following me? 
And so Paul's got to find a way for these Christians to stop getting kicked out of the city. And so he's like, guys, guys, pay your taxes, lay low, do what needs to be done, say what needs to be said, pay what needs to be paid, and just get along, right, so that we can keep doing what we're here to do. Now, what this doesn't mean, clearly, is that Christians should just be passively patriotic. It doesn't mean that we should be blindly patriotic. In fact, the New Testament itself bears out some examples of ways in which Christians stand up against the powers that be, the governmental authorities. The Christian movement itself is anti-Roman government. Like, they're claiming Jesus is Lord. That was the phrase used for Caesar only. Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the Son of God. And so by its very nature, it's subversive, right? And so there are times, there are times when the governmental authorities in this world that are under God's authority, as Paul says in Romans 13, these are underneath the ultimate authority of God. When these get out of hand, when these are corrupt, then Christians can speak out and act out against them for some higher cause. Acts chapter 4 is a good example of this. Peter and John were preaching in a public square. They were told by the local governing authorities to shut up about it and never bring it up in public again, this whole Jesus character. And this is what happened next. We have this in Acts chapter 4. Uh, it says, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So listen, there are times and places when... The governmental authorities are so in contrast and their decisions are so counter to the will of God. I think about the civil rights era, for example, or before that, the abolitionist movement, the women's suffrage movement. Times when people of faith spoke out against the government and its authority for the sake of some higher purpose. That does happen, but it is the exception to the rule and not the rule itself. Um, uh, let's move on to the second part of this uh, passage from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. That was the hardest and most uncomfortable part. Y'all good? Can we keep going? All right. Romans 8 through 10, uh, th chapter 13, 8 through 10. Let no debt remain. Wait, this is the hardest part. Never mind. This right here is the hardest part. <laughs> let, <laughs> let no debt remain. Outstanding. Christians should not be in debt is what Paul is saying. Amen. Hallelujah. Y'all want to move on? You know, I'm not even going to teach on that. I'm going to act like Paul didn't say that. Y'all cool with that? All right, let's keep going. <laughs> DaveRamsey.com, y'all check it out. Except <laughs> the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So the second question I think Paul's wrestling with in this chapter 13 is, um, how much should Christians put up with sinners? How much should we be in their, in their company? And in my first act of life, I often uh, was told to, to love sinners, but from a distance. <laughs> love sinners, but don't hang out with them. You can be in the world, don't be of the world, which really meant just don't be in the world. Like, that's how it all <laughs> actually played out. And so the question here is, is how much uh, should we love sinners? Now, sometimes I think this is important to point out because Paul deals with the Old Testament here. Sometimes we are too quick to dismiss the law of the Old Testament because Jesus came and overrode it. So Jesus showed us how to love so we don't have to know the law. And... Uh, 
the New Testament makes the old obsolete. Listen, um, my, one of my favorite preachers, big time preacher who writes a bunch of books and stuff, kind of broke my heart recently when he wrote a book that suggested that we should stop teaching people the Old Testament and stop em- emphasizing the, the Old Testament law and stuff and the covenant of the Old Testament and just give them Jesus because this is too harsh. It's too hard for them to understand. And this, that's not how this works. The New Testament does not make the old obsolete. It's not like two-thirds of the way through this whole experiment, God's like, well, that didn't work. Jesus, you're up. You know, that's not, that's not how it worked. It was all there the whole time. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is there for, to point us toward the, the New Testament and Jesus, right? And so it all works together. The New Testament, if anything, reveals the original source and substance of the law. The original source and substance of the law was love. It was given out of love. It was received out of love. God had just delivered these people from their slavery in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea, gave them bread from heaven miraculously and away in the wilderness. And they, because of God's gracious freedom that he had given them, they received the law in love. They didn't follow the law because, oh, my God, if we don't, we don't go to heaven. They followed the law because they delighted in God and nothing delighted them more than delighting God. And they wanted him to delight in them. And so their obedience was an act of love. And what changed was that after several generations, guys like me who wanted job security, we started to create a whole different system with these laws given in love. And we said, we said, if you don't follow these, you don't belong here. Period. And this is not about love. This is about what's legal. And we're in charge now. And when religion got a hold of the law, that's, that's what the problem was. But don't, don't let arguments at homonym get you off track. Like the, the idiots that say things don't discount the original source material, right? So the original source material is all about love, all about relationship. God is saying, here are the parameters in which you are free to live freely. And everybody knows you can't live freely without parameters. You can't roam freely without limitations. It's chaos to try to, to create a painting without a canvas. It's chaos. You can't, you don't know where to start. These laws were given out of love. And so love is the fulfillment of the law, as Paul writes. So in Luke chapter 10, um, there is this expert in the law, this really expert lawyer who comes to Jesus. And he, he doesn't come with a pure heart or good intentions. He tries to come and trick Jesus. And he says, Jesus, tell me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he thinks he's already got it. It's not even a question for him. But he's trying to trip Jesus up. And Jesus says, you know the law. What does it say? And the lawyer answers correctly. He says, I can sum it up this way. Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. And Jesus is like, that's it. Do that and you'll be saved. You'll live forever. And then the lawyer, afraid he's losing the fight, missing his opportunity to trip Jesus up, says, but who is my neighbor? And then he turns around and high fives his buddies. Like, yeah, like I own that guy. And Jesus responds to his gotcha question, who is my neighbor, which really meant how much do I have to love? Who all do I have to love? How much is enough? Can I just love people like me, people who live next door to me, people with the same values and income strata as me? Like, Or is it something else? And Jesus answered his question with a story, a story you all know, even if you're new to Christianity or if you're not a Christian yet, you know the story. It's the one about the Good Samaritan where the guy gets beaten up and left for dead naked on the side of the road and two guys like me, religious leaders, come by and look at the man and just keep on our way because we can't be bothered with that inconvenience. And then the unlikeliest of heroes, 
the Good Samaritan comes by. Jews hated Samaritans in those days. They were basically at war. It was a culture war between the two factions. And for Jesus to tell a story with the Samaritan at the center as the hero was unheard of. But the Samaritan's the one who got down on his hands and knees and mended the guy's wounds and picked him up with his bare hands, his naked body, and his arms to take him to a safe place to nurse him back to health. And Jesus, at the end of the story, asked the lawyer, who, who was it that was a neighbor to the man who was broken and beaten and left for dead? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Who is your neighbor? Was the question. And Jesus' answer is, whoever's in front of you. Whoever God puts in your path with an opportunity to show mercy, that's your neighbor. And when you find a way to love the person God put right in front of you, even though every fiber in your being might be telling you not to, in your heart, you've fulfilled the law of God. The law in its purest form, is written on your heart at that point. And if you fail to love, if you fail to show mercy, if you can't bring yourself to overcome your anger or your isms or whatever, then maybe, maybe you don't really know Jesus like you thought you did. Maybe there's still more to be done to surrender to him. Paul says Christians shouldn't have any debt except the debt to love because we were the man. And Jesus, and not the religious, but Jesus stopped, got on his hands and knees, picked up our broken bodies with his bare hands, and carried us along the path towards salvation and healing. And the only appropriate response is to love as we have been loved. The third and final section of this Romans sermon series is verses 11 through 14 of chapter 13, where Paul says, and do this, love your neighbor, he says, Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. and Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, uh, Paul is talking about the end times, the end of days here, which we don't talk about very much because Christians made that weird a long time ago, and we don't, we're uncomfortable with it because, like, the left behind stuff, and this horse is Russia, and that horse is China, and nobody, nobody knows what the horses are, like, that are coming in the last days, the Revelation horses, and, and nobody knows, nobody knows. But we thought we, were, we knew for a generation there, and then we just made it weird. But the second coming of Jesus is biblical. He talks about it all the time, Jesus does. And, and yet it should be good news. What it means is God's not done yet. God's not finished. God's going to complete what he started, and it's not up to us. There's peace in that. Like it's not dependent on our cooperation. We can cooperate if we want to, and it's awesome when we do. But it's not up to us. God's coming back. So uh, Jesus points this out in several times, in, including in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13, where basically he says the hour nobody knows except uh, God himself is the only one that knows. And then he tells a story about a master of a property that leaves for a while and leaves some servants in charge, and the servants should be ready anytime the master comes back. They should be watching. 
And it brings to mind this funny meme that used to be all over the place uh, on the internet, and, and now it's, it's all over the place uh, in, in like, uh, not meme form, but people are like tattooing it on walls and stuff. Uh, Jesus is coming, look busy. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I like it because the idea here is, uh, is you, want, you want to hope that Jesus comes back on a Sunday morning when you're at church and not on a Sunday night when you're a little inebriated and screaming at the refs or at your Longhorns or your Aggies or whatever because they broke your heart again. Um, I mean, uh, you guys should just be Cougar fans. It's a lot more fun. So um, anyway, uh, so... So, you know, you, you really hope Jesus comes back at a moment when you're at your best behavior. Because maybe if you don't, then Jesus comes back and you've been living a really, really, really good life your whole life. And this one time you, like, open a bottle of wine and it's like the trumpet sounds. You're like, ah, shoot. You know, like, <laughs> just my luck. You know, that kind of thing. But listen, Paul and Jesus aren't saying that if Jesus comes back at a moment, it's not your best moment, then you'll go to hell forever. I don't, I don't think that is the point because remember... Uh, I think if we've learned nothing else in this series, I hope it's that your salvation doesn't depend on your good behavior. So salvation is not dependent on behavior. However, I think this is the more important idea for what Paul's saying. Even though your salvation doesn't depend on your behavior, your testimony depends entirely on your transformation. The testimony you have, your witness to the world around you, depends on how your life is being changed. Because when your eyes are really open to the objective truth of Jesus, you must be changed by that. If God himself put on flesh and came back and tried to claim us as his children again and forgave us of all of our sins, no questions asked, that's a big enough deal to trump everything else going on in your life. It should be everything. The problem is when we try to claim Christianity as a social reality, nothing fundamental changes within us, and the people closest to us in our sphere of influence, they see us claiming Christianity while nothing's changing, and they think it's just social. It's empty. It's shallow. And I've, I've been convicted about this, y'all. Honestly, this week I was thinking about this, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a group under the bus because they're my friends, and that's what you do. When you're friends, uh, there's a, the, our very first chapter group who I'm very close with, uh, the very first small group we ever had at the story. Um, we asked them to come up with a name for themselves, and they came back to us, and they said, uh, we've decided to call ourselves Wine in the Word, and, uh, which was a chuckle-chuckle thing at the time. It was kind of funny. And then a couple years later, they came back to us, and they were like, yeah, it's a little problem. Maybe we've been a little heavy on the wine, a little light on the Word. And, uh, <laughs> and a few months after that, they weren't really meeting regularly anymore. Um, which didn't have as much to do with the wine as the fact that they, uh, they all had a bunch of babies all at once, which might have had something to do with the wine. I don't know, but it's indirect, <laughs> indirect. And so uh, they, weren't, they weren't meeting anymore. But, but here's the thing. I think, I think it's possible to have such a desire to make Christianity and church so relevant to so many that you lower the bar so much that there's no difference anymore. I think it's possible to pursue relevance at the expense of faithful sacrifice. To the extent that the Christian life doesn't look much different than anything else. It's just a really cool place to hang out with Jesus on the door. It's like we're just, we're just regular people under the Jesus brand who don't live any differently. And I'm convicted 
by that. I pray that we never become that. One of my worst fears is that we become the, the cool church where nobody changes. It happens. And I pray that instead of becoming a bunch of people gathered under the brand of Jesus, I pray that we become a bunch of sinners. Sorry, sinners branded by Jesus and saved by his grace for the transformation of the world. I think, I think that's why we're here. I think that's a better, uh, a better vision. And, and I have to say that if I've ever or we as a church have ever given you the impression that you can just uh, say you love God and then just keep living the same life you've always lived, drinking the same way you've always drunk, partying the same way you've always partied, having sex the same way you've always had sex, uh, treating your money and your time and your spouse and your closest people in your life the same way you've always treated them. I repent from that. We repent from that as a church. That is not who we're called to be. God is in the transformation business. And when you fully receive him, even though you're going to take steps back and there'll be some backsliding, when your heart is his, there's transformation from the inside out. And I know, I promise you, there are people in this room right now who have struggled or are struggling with the same exact thing you are. And you think you're all alone in it. And that one thing you haven't let go of yet, or the one thing that holds you back the most, you think you're the only one here, and everybody else around you has their act together. If you could be a fly on the wall in my office or my email inbox, you would know differently. There's somebody in this room right now, probably multiple people, who are struggling in the exact same way that you are. And many of them have overcome. They've taken steps toward healing and freedom. And they can help you do the same. But the first step in that process is owning that, being willing to entertain the possibility of surrendering that, being willing to be the one friend in your friend's group who drinks a little less than they do, who drinks a little less than you did yesterday or last week or last year. In fact, who doesn't even need to drink at all. And if you haven't tried successfully to give up drinking for any length of time, and it's just a part of your everyday life now, I encourage you to exert a little self-denial, a little self-control in that area of your life. Give that over to Jesus, lest you become a slave to it, lest you need it in order to function at a party. There's a word for that, and you'll know what it is. It starts with an A, ends with alcoholism. <laughs> I don't know. And you know what I'm talking about. You got to... You gotta be honest. And I think there's more people who are functional addicts of some substance or another, even if it's shopping or money or, or, or belittling your spouse, the stuff you did before Jesus, you're continuing to do it now, and it's time to give that up too. And you can. You can by the grace of God. You can. Every single person who has come up on this stage and been baptized in the water of that horse trough or that tank, and, or they've been baptized down here with the sprinkling of the water on the hand or the, or, the, or the head, we have proclaimed a newness. And the ones that come up here and get dunked in the water, they're actually clothed in a new robe because all their clothes are wet and it's awkward. And we're just like, get the robe on them as soon as we can. But there's symbolism in that. Paul says, be clothed in Christ Jesus. What's happening internally should have an effect externally. There should be a difference, a change in you. You should look different. And again, it's not because you have to be perfect or have it all figured out in order to be saved or to get to heaven. 
But if your aim is to impact those around you and to bring those around you and closest to you a little closer to Jesus, as it must be if the love of God is the law that's written on your heart. And transformation is what God is all about here. Give a little bit more to him today. Surrender just a little bit more to him. And he'll meet you there. Whereas the first couple of acts of my life were marked with different forms of fundamentalism and cynicism, the third act of my life has been marked by the love of God that has brought in me a sense of holiness and humility. And I feel a little strange saying, I'm so humble now, you guys. Uh, a better word for it is just raw emptiness. Before I woke up every day fooling myself and saying I've got it figured out and I'm good. Both in Act 1 and Act 2 for different reasons. And now I wake up every day completely empty when it comes to myself and what I have to offer. Because I'm just another sorry sinner branded by Christ and saved by his grace. And even though he's given me gifts that I can give, preaching, leading, and all that stuff, I'm still just nobody. I'm along for the ride. And every day he convicts me a little bit more about a little something else I need to surrender to him. And every time I do, I get a clearer picture of the freedom I have within these limitations he set for me. And because of the transformation that he's working in me, I also see my kids wanting him more. I see my wife loving him more. And they love me more because I'm more lovable. I'm not the jerk I used to be by the grace of God. Still a jerk sometimes, but not all the time. By the grace of God. Transformation is possible. Whatever that one thing is that's held you back the most, I urge you in your heart of hearts to hand it over to God today and to be clothed with Christ Jesus, transformed by him for the transformation of the world. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your servant Paul and for his words that... Um, in many ways, uh, sustained a community then and sustain us today. Lord, um, your grace and mercy have set us free, even when we sin and mess up, when we backslide and take steps in the wrong direction. You welcome us home again. Lord, help us to not, by virtue of your grace, slip into complacency, but to pursue more holiness all the time, to clothe ourselves in you. So that not only would we come closer to you, but those around us would see the transformation in us and want what we've got. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.